0: Hi, I'm Ben. I get to introduce a friend of mine who has a huge heart that is an amazing thing. His heart is for the church in Denver to be the church in Denver. Um, all the little churches coming together and and working as one. and so it's it's kind of his this whole month of going through the twenty third psalm is kind of his brainchild and his baby um, of getting a bunch of churches in Denver doing uh, like working together preaching the not the same sermons but preaching on the same Bible uh, scripture and just sharing sharing God's heart for the city of Denver and for each of our congregations and so Jared Mackey's been a part of he's one of the founding pastors of TNL which is kind of the older bro- wiser brother of scum of the earth um, I compare it to the Starbucks versus the indie Trinity coffee shop, which is scum. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, um, but there has been a good friend of Mike's and mine and a lot of people on staff's for quite some time, and he's been a huge resource for the city of Denver and for the church in Denver, so thanks.
1: Yeah. Nothing like being introduced as the guy from Starbucks to a bunch of people who probably like hate Starbucks. So that was, uh, that was very kind Ben. So, well, okay, that's fine too. Um, uh, so yeah, my name's Jared. Uh, my family moved up to Denver in uh, 1981 and uh, um, talk a little bit about my um, kind of childhood past a little bit as we continue. And my father was a Southern Baptist minister, so that'll probably come out sooner than later. Um, which sometimes that makes a lot of sense, and if you didn't uh, or were never exposed to kind of that particular strain of uh, Christendom, then it might not make a lot of sense. But, um, yeah, we accidentally started a church in 1993 uh, called TNL. Uh, There was a group of us that were just trying to find an authentic expression um, of following the way of Jesus, and so uh, we started meeting on Tuesday nights in 93, uh, and so this year we'll celebrate 21 years, and uh, so I've been there for 21 years, and I was telling the staff earlier... As we are praying at 21, um, either like you should be a grown up and responsible and should take care of yourself, or you're just the age of a really good bourbon. Uh, But either way, uh, 21's a good year, um, and uh, it's been it's been a lot. Uh, It's been a lot of um, ups and downs over the years, and um, I just really feel fortunate to have shared a lot of those years uh, with, um, as Ben was saying, uh, people who make up the church in Denver, and so this idea of Uh, maybe something that we lost along the way um, in kind of somewhat of a post-denominational era. Um, Denominations, you know, we kind of went through an era where um, kind of labels meant a lot and then maybe they meant too much. But something that might have happened and we kind of accidentally lost or kind of an unintended consequence was as we all kind of broke up and became these kind of independent independent, autonomous congregations, um, is that we quit kind of learning together. And uh, so I think that there's a lot of beauty in, uh, like, the Book of Common Prayer or different ways that we find ourselves kind of grounded in and centered in the same text. And so this was just an experiment that we've done the last two summers of just asking what would it look like if churches around Denver um, did this kind of crazy thing and all taught the exact same thing for a month. Um, Because we think that, like, when God looks down on a city, he doesn't see a lot of little churches. He sees the church in Denver, right? And so, what would it look like for us to see ourselves a little bit more that way? What would it look like for other people, maybe outside of the church, to occasionally hear that we were all on the same page? Um, the last time I checked, it seems like that most of our press is about how we disagree. Um, and so, I just think in a moment and a movement of, uh, of unity, um, how can we do that? And it's fun. Fran taught over at a Denver Community Church this morning. And so, if my sermon really sucks, you should just ask her to give one after this. So,. Um, So let me start with this. Um, I'm not a shepherd. Um, You know, that that would be a really good thing when you're teaching on Psalm 23 is if your opening line was, I'm a shepherd, and so I'm the expert on sheep. Um, I, in fact, don't own sheep. Um, I'm not even sure that it's uh, legal to own sheep in uh, Denver. But, you know, with the whole new urban kind of farm movement before too long, like your next door neighbor will probably have some sheep. And then you can have them come and give this talk here in a couple of years. Uh, I do have a dog. Um, and so I felt like I should uh, at least, you know, uh, it's the animal that I'm closest to. Uh, my dog, though, most people wouldn't consider a dog um, because it's about 25 pounds. It's um, called a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, which basically is a, is a very long name for a dog who um, has uh, no interest in self-improvement, as in completely uh, dependent and needy and shameless about his needs for attention and affection. Uh, so most people just call it, like, a little wussy dog. So. Um, so this is my dog. Uh, he's about 10 years old. Um, and he is. He's really shameless. He uh, thinks everybody who comes over to our house is there to visit him. Um, he gives you about 10 seconds after you walk in the door, and then he comes up and, and like, plants himself kind of next to your leg and starts moving his little feather duster really fast, like, pay attention to me because that's why you're here. And um, and so, you, you know, you try to, like, curtsy and, like, thank you, nice to see you. Um, but then eventually, like you'll sit down in my house, and, and Moses's paw will start like pawing at your leg, which basically means that you're sitting incorrectly um, because there, you need to sit in such a way so that he can get up in your lap. Because his thought process is that you've come over to the house so he can lay in your lap and take a nap, and uh, so he'll get you eventually to to yield to his neediness, and um, he'll find himself in your lap, and then he'll he'll um, start taking a nap, which works horribly for a conversation, because although he's a very small dog, he snores really loud. And so now you're over at my house trying to have a conversation, and you have this, like, little pathetic excuse of a dog snoring really loud. Uh, and Moses has, has no shame about any of it. Uh, that's his name, by the way. Um, and you know what they say is that after a while, owners start to look like their dogs. And uh, so one of the things that I've come to recognize is um, there's this dependent part of me. Uh, there's this part of me that, uh, that probably I didn't want to admit when I was 20 or 30. Uh, but now crossing 40, um, there's this part of me that's really needy like Moses. Uh, There's this me that I can't quite improve on, that I can't quite fix, that I can't quite, regardless of the amount of effort or energy, kind of get to to be the right way or do the right thing. And I think that Psalm 23 has something to say about that because I think in our culture what we've maybe unconsciously and maybe even accidentally done is we've uh, replaced the word uh, soul with self. See, I think this needy, dependent part of me is a part that God created, and it's called my soul, and it needs something greater than my own self-improvement. But in our context, in our cultural moment, it seems to be that we're really obsessed with self-improvement, we're really focused on ourselves. It seems to be if there was ever a people focused on ourselves, it is, in fact, us. But I believe that the soul and the self are not the same. But we're really interested in ourselves. Uh, we want to find occupations in which we feel like that they are creative expressions of ourselves. Uh, we read a lot of books about how to believe more in ourselves. We want to find friends that you know encourage us to be our true selves, and we want to find a relationship, or maybe the relationship, like a marriage relationship, in which you really you know come into like you know complete self, right? Kind of that weird Jerry Maguire philosophy of marriage, and um, and yet when you listen to kind of psychologists and sociologists, they will tell you that. Uh, in the 20th century, every generation is three times more likely to experience anxiety and depression than the one before it. And so for all of our self-improvement, uh, statistically we're not getting a whole lot better. And maybe we've become so obsessed with ourselves that we have neglected our souls. And so at this point it might be at least be helpful to have a rudimentary definition of what is the soul. As best as I have found words for it, Dallas Willard says that the soul is the self that exists before God. He says, what is running your life at any given moment is your soul, not external circumstances, not your thoughts, not your intentions, not even your feelings, but your soul. The soul is the aspect of your whole being that correlates, integrates, and enlivens everything that's going around in the various dimensions of the self. He goes on to say this, you're a soul made by God, made for God, and made to need God. You're a soul made by God, made for God, and made to need God. See, there's this needy part of me, and my conjecture is there's this needy part of you that doesn't get improved on, that simply needs. Willard was the professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California, died in 2013. It's an incredible writer on the Christian faith and following the way of Jesus and spiritual practices. A book that kind of formed so much of my thoughts about this was uh, written uh, by somebody that he, in some ways, mentored and did spiritual direction with, a guy named John Ortberg. Uh, And John wrote this book called Soul Keeping. And if you don't have a great book that you're reading right now, it's it's a worthwhile read. Uh, I had the opportunity to meet John once because he had written a lot of books and so I was in Chicago visiting this church that he was pastoring and Stood in queue, you know, to talk to him, and um, everybody was saying, you know, very flowery things to him. And I didn't want to be lame, and so I was like, I'm just not even going to practice what I'm going to say. I'm just going to say something really from my heart when I get up there. <clears throat> so what came out of my heart when I got up there is, I looked at him and he said, "Hi, my name's John." Hi, and he kind of compassionately looked at me and he's like, "What's your name?" <laughs> I was like, uh, "My name's Jared." He's like, "Thanks, Jared." Awkward pause. What came out of my heart was, I like your books. <laughs> I kind of smiled very compassionately. Thank you, Jared. Okay. I turned around and walked away. And the, <clears throat> the person I was with, you know, uh, she asked, she goes, So, uh, so how did it go? So it's like I told him I liked his books. She's like, was that your plan? I was like, no, I was trying not to have a plan. She's like, well, next time, have a plan. So um, <laughs> I'm sure Mike has had more than a handful of people you know, just walk up and you know, not know what to say, because you know, they're kind of in the presence of this guy who wrote the book about scum, and they just say, I like your books, right, right Mike? So uh, Ortberg writes this beautiful book about the direction um, of his soul that Willard provides. Dallas goes on to write, the soul is the capacity to integrate all the parts into a single whole life. And I think that's what we, we miss, regardless of the amount of self-improvement that we do. We can't quite integrate on our own. We need someone um, to shepherd us. We need someone to gather us, to, to make us whole. We think about the, the planes that have gone down over the last couple of months. When they talk about um, the number of um, souls on a plane... Because there's something, even in kind of a cultural context outside of faith, that we understand that the soul is something greater than just the self. One of the hymns that my grandmother uh, liked the most was um, How Great Thou Art. And there's this line in it that says, Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. And I thought about like, how awkward that song would be if you like, stood up and sang, like, Then sings myself, my Savior God to thee. Like, it just doesn't sound right. I mean, there's something that doesn't ring true because we actually know that there's something about our soul uh, that's greater than just ourself. And so the soul is made as Willard says, by God and for God and made to need God. Because the soul has to orbit around something. It has to worship something. Uh, Worship as much as it has been kind of confined in some of our heads to an hour on Sunday morning or Sunday night or Tuesday night. What we recognize is that our whole lives are acts of worship. So the question is, is what does our soul orbit around? Because it has to orbit around something. We all worship something. The question isn't if you worship. The question is, what do you worship? It's the nature of the soul to need. And so what I've come to recognize over the last a couple of years, is that Moses is probably the most honest reflection of the neediness of my soul. He's like this little embodiment that God has been using to teach me about how needy I actually am and how much my soul needs a shepherd. And I've begun to be honest that the self-improvement is, is very different than soul care. And so, so my soul needs a shepherd, and, and there is a God, there is a shepherd um, who can ultimately care for that. Ortberg writes, the soul's infinite capacity to desire is the mirror image of God's infinite capacity to give. It's been probably the most encouraging thing over the last season of my life, which has been an incredibly difficult one. And um, most of the time I use curse words to describe how difficult it is. And I was told that I could curse here if I wanted to, and I wouldn't get in too much trouble. Um, But sometimes it feels like that you want too much. Right, that your heart longs for something. And you just wonder, like, am I asking for too much? And this statement has grounded me and affirmed that, no, like, what my soul longs for is the mirror image of the God that created it and in his infinite capacity to meet what my soul is longing for. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23, it's um, a psalm that we chose to, to learn together, to study together with the church in Denver this month. And it's a psalm, uh, a song that's loved by children, because children, kind of like dogs, are um, incredibly comfortable with their dependents. My daughter, who's five, uh, would say that uh, the shepherd's prayer, which is what she calls this, is her second favorite prayer to the Jesus Tacos prayer. And I don't know if you guys do the Jesus Tacos prayer here at Scum or not. Um, It took me a while to figure out which prayer exactly the Jesus Tacos prayer was. I was actually concerned about the heresy that um, the people at her church were teaching her, um, which happens to be the church that I lead. So it took me a better part of three months to figure out, um, because every night I would say, Kenna, do you want to say the shepherd's prayer? No, I want to say the Jesus Tacos prayer. No idea what the Jesus tacos. So I'm trying to think, like, have we had tacos? Did we talk about Jesus the tacos? And and just kind of months went on. And finally, one night, um, I had said the shepherd's prayer the night before. And so I was putting her to bed and I said, Now we pray the prayer that Jesus taught those he called brothers and sisters and friends, our Father who art in heaven. And she kind of got this big smile. She's like, Daddy! I was like, What? She's like, You said the Jesus tacos prayer. I was like, oh, somebody told me once that I mumble. And uh, so what my daughter heard was, and now we pray the prayer that Jesus tacos for his brothers and sisters and friends. So I think my three-year-old basically just figured out that Jesus had given all of his brothers and sisters and friends tacos, and then this is the prayer that you say when you're giving tacos to people. <laughs> so there's that. The kids, they're funny. Um, they have, no pro- they have no shame at all about the way that they're dependent and needy. They, they resonate with this psalm. Right? They see the images. They feel the images. They live the images. And we, kind of like sheep, have gone astray and gone our own way. Uh, we grow up, and it's difficult to be fully honest about how much we need our souls to be restored. And so there's an invitation, I think, in Psalm 23 um, to believe that the psalm may be about your soul, about my soul, and the fact that our soul needs a shepherd. Like I said, my father was a Southern Baptist minister, and in the Baptist tradition, uh, you can't actually stand up in a church and talk without alliteration. Uh, You have to, at some point when you're speaking, uh, like use words that start with the same letter. If you don't, they actually take your credentials away and you get excommunicated. And so... um, Out of respect for my uh, father's tradition, as well as it's actually the only way that I learn, um, there are four R's that I've kind of bantered around with over the last month as I've been praying this prayer that I think that the soul needs a shepherd for. Uh, The first is that the soul needs a shepherd for rest. He makes me lie down in green pastures. The soul, as you spend more time thinking about it, might be kind of like a king on a chessboard. It's this incredibly important piece of who you are that doesn't move very quickly at all. As the African kind of proverb goes, some tourists traveling and they'd hired the nationals and they wanted to see as much as they could, uh, as quickly as they could. And so they sat out on their journey and they were so excited. They kind of pushed well past mid-afternoon into evening and they kept traveling and were so excited that at the end of the day, um, they told the guides, you know, we saw even more today than we thought we were going to see. We're so excited um, to, to do even more tomorrow. Well, the guides didn't say much. Everybody went to rest that night. I woke up the next morning and um, those who were traveling and excited to see more and more of the country showed up um, at breakfast and they asked the guides, well, why, are, why aren't you all packed and ready to go? The guides simply responded, we moved too far yesterday. Today we will wait for our souls to catch up. So the question is, is sometimes are you moving so quickly that you have to wait for your soul to catch up? Some questions that a spiritual director asked me is: um, how do you know if your soul needs rest? And here's a few of the questions that I affirmed, all of them positively. So it was a kind of a shameful little moment. But here's the first thing he asked. He goes, Jared, do little things bother you more than they used to? Yes. Second question. Uh, Do you find it incredibly hard to make simple decisions? Have you found that some impulses towards addiction are more difficult to resist than they used to be? Do you just kind of feel like you have no courage? And then you defined courage for me. And he said courage is about strength of heart. We're not sure either it was Patton or Shakespeare, which don't have a whole lot in common, but when you Google the quote, these are the two people who are giving credit for it, fatigue makes cowards of a soul. See, I desperately want to follow the way of Jesus. But what I recognize is that when my soul is not um, living and working and responding to God out of a place of rest, I'm incredibly bothered by little things. and I can't make simple decisions and uh, impulses and temptations are much more difficult to resist. And and in general, there's just this lack of whole heart, of courageous strength of heart that I believe that God has given me. So he asked me those questions a couple years ago and, and began to ask, what does it look like for you to rest? One of the things uh, I have a friend who grew up in um, the Seventh Day Adventist tradition, which are uh, people who follow the way of Jesus but hold to a lot of the practices of um, the Judaic tradition, and uh, and she kind of had a bad experience, kind of like I had a bad experience. But one of the things that she says that she misses um, is that from sundown on Friday night to sundown on Saturday night, there was kind of this communal peer pressure to not do anything, and I would encourage you if. If your soul needs rest, most likely you're not going to rest on your own. As one of my mentors said, you know, if you were going to get better on your own, you would have by now. It's a nice thing for a guy who doesn't know you to say, right? But it's true for me, and it may be true for you. If you were going to figure out how to rest on your own, you would have by now. And so probably you need some communal peer pressure about how to rest and find rest for your soul. The second is, I think that the soul needs a shepherd for repentance. This word repent, uh, because of my tradition, um, I kind of had a, a, uh, negative thoughts about because um, it was probably a word that I've just felt like I heard a lot. I had no idea what it meant. Um, all I know is that like it felt like when it was said the guy who was preaching was yelling, uh, and because my father was on staff, I had to sit up front, and so therefore like he would be spitting and like I just had bad experiences with this like word repent, and I was like, can we find another word?" Um, But I think it's a beautiful word because I was reading Jesus, you know, and he says, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. His cousin John says the same thing. And so I figured it might be just more beneficial rather than just to have negative experiences about the word, to figure out what the word actually meant. And what the word means is to reorient, right, to see something differently. And so when the psalmist writes, your rod and your staff, they comfort me, There's a sense of that the rod and the staff are both kind of the invitation and challenge of the shepherd to reorient the sheep in the direction that they're supposed to go, sometimes by nudging them in the backside and sometimes with a crook around the neck. And what I recognize is that my soul needs repentance. My soul needs reoriented on a consistent basis. And for me, my day is determined in the first 10 minutes of the day. Um, I just read a stat, uh, I think it was New York Times last week, that said 76% of people the first thing they do when they wake up in the morning is turn on their cell phone. It's like over three-quarters of people now, when they wake up, the first thing they do is turn on their cell phone. Um, So guess what's orienting you at that point? Uh, Guess what's aligning you? It's your email or your Facebook or whatever it it is that you kind of look at first in the morning. That's the thing that's orienting you. And so for me, the the daily offices of prayer have become incredibly important. uh, To to start my day with something that's aligning and realigning my heart. And I recognize that that has to happen more than just like once a week. And honestly, it has to, for me, happen more than once a day. It has to be something that's consistently kind of inviting and challenging me back to who God created me to be. The third is uh, that the soul needs a shepherd for rescue. Um, I think one of the most beautiful things about Psalm 23 is that there's so much imagery in it. Um, and, and it's been really fun. We've had five different people come in and teach at TNL. Um, the last one will come in and teach on Tuesday. And, and, and so there's just, just a wealth of people who have reflected on this psalm. And so I'm just kind of stealing from like, the people that I've heard teach really well on this one. That Probably one of the more confusing lines is this idea of, like, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And, and so here's one possible um, explanation, kind of historical kind of precedence. So when um, an enemy was captured, you kind of take the spoils of war, right? Well, maybe one of the final insults to a captured king would in fact be to, to chain the king to the table. And then out of the spoils of his house, you would bring all of his food and you would have a feast in front of the king that you had just conquered. There's nothing quite as insulting as eating another man's food. But what would it be like for the things that you once feared, the shepherd now invites you to sit and feast in front of? Are there things for you like there are for me that have been so large of fears, the idea of feasting in front of your fears, you recognize only God could do that? but I think that's what the shepherd's invitation is, is, is for rescue so great from your fears, that you actually can have a party in front of them. And the second point he talks there is, you anoint my head with oil. Uh, one pastor, I was visiting in New York, and I told him I was going to be teaching on Psalm 23. He goes, well, Jared, really the only thing that you need to, to know is that sheep have mental health issues. <laughs> well, that would explain most of me as well, so that's good. Um, but he said, well, the problem is, is that, you know, they just kind of uh, wander around and eat and then, you know, chew on their cud, uh, ruminate, you know. And so they don't do a lot. And so the reason they have mental health issues is because they're just um, really slow-moving uh, little creatures. And, and they have, like, a lot of insects and flies just kind of hover around them and swarm around them. And for some reason, the way that God created them uh, was just a really thin membrane on top of their head. And so, uh, most likely, most sheep have some sort of insect that's laying eggs on the sheep's head, and therefore, the insects kind of burrow inside this thin membrane, and sheep have mental health issues, right? They have things that swarm around their head and eventually lodge themselves in their head. And the shepherd is a good shepherd, and he anoints the sheep with oil, which is kind of like a biblical version of Oath, right? Um, some oil and some spices rubbed on a sheep's head would keep flies away. As well as um, as the shepherd's massaging the head of the sheep, uh, he's he's kind of working out um, the insects that have tried to burrow themselves in. And it's such a beautiful picture, right, of the things that swarm around our heads and the things that try to bury themselves in our minds that cause us to be like sheep with mental health issues and and making no light at all of serious mental health issues. But I think so much of of what we need God to rescue us from is not just our fears on the outside, uh, but it's the things that have plagued us on the inside. We need a shepherd to remind us of who he is and who we are. And, And finally, we need a shepherd for renewal. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A favorite author by the name of Frederick Buechner writes that in the last and final analysis, all moments are key moments, and life itself is grace. Um, There are moments in life that it, it doesn't exactly feel like goodness and mercy in the present. I mean, this last season has been one of those seasons for me that's been difficult at times to have days where I look around and feel that this is good. But it seems to be that what the psalmist is writing is that goodness and mercy will follow me. Therefore, goodness and mercy are far better seen in the rearview mirror than sometimes they are seen in the, in the current context. It's a little kind of force for the trees thing. Because when I look back over this um, really dark, in a season that I'm kind of maybe just beginning to emerge from, I do see a lot of goodness and mercy. That we're difficult to see in the midst of. And so we need a shepherd to remind us that he is renewing us, that he is in fact making all things new. Goodness simply is the reality that all things work together for good for those who love God. That that so much of life as grace and as gift, is goodness, um, not because of my own self-improvement, but because of a shepherd who loves and cares. And the prayer that I have found myself praying most over um, this last season is the mercy prayer, right? Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Which mercy for me has meant simply that the full weight of the choices that I have made and others have made that are close to me would not come full full weight down on me and those that I love. That all the things that should have happened might not happen. And when I look back in the rearview mirror, choices that I've made and choices that other people have made, I see goodness and I see mercy. I see the shepherd renewing and restoring. I see a willingness as I am willing to be led and a willing to follow Uh, this promise come more and more true. And so there's this last piece, right? Like, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This place that where our soul that longs, and it feels like sometimes an infinite longing that will never be satisfied, is promised that that longing, in fact, will be satisfied. And so Willard writes, You must arrange your days so that you're experiencing deep contentment, deep joy, and deep confidence in your everyday life with God. How do you arrange your days? How do I arrange my days? So that this deep contentment and deep joy and deep confidence is found by the good shepherd who is caring for us. Because the soul does not thrive on accomplishment. It does not thrive on status. Regardless of uh, what relationship you're hoping to define you or job or social group, your soul will long until it finds itself oriented to finding its deep contentment, its deep joy, and deep confidence with God. Regardless of the intellectual property that you have, the financial property you have, all of us go through, I think, this same keyhole, which is time and space. And so the question is, is in the time and the space, in the days that you have, how do you arrange your days so that you experience this with God? There's a young man named Nicholas Herman, uh, not a particularly bright young man who decided to arrange his days with God by joining a monastic community. He was given the responsibility of being a dishwasher. But he found that even in washing dishes, he could arrange his day in which, while washing dishes, he found deep contentment, and he found this deep joy, and he had even a deep confidence about what he was doing with God. He went on to uh, pen some of his thoughts. It's called Practicing the Presence of God. It's known as Brother Lawrence. And and if you'd like to read probably one of the smaller and more profound people who understood of having their soul cared for by a shepherd, I would encourage you to read that one as well. There you go. Now you have two books off the list. Uh, So my dog Moses um, started coughing kind of this weird kind of cough about uh, a month ago. And so I took him to the vet, and, um, you know, the whole dog years, kind of, you know, seven years for one, whatever, um, like, it was like a year ago that Moses and I were the same age. And so when I took him to the vet, and the, do- the vet goes, well, you know, he's geriatric. And I was like, well, we're kind of close to the same age. And so I didn't know, like, what to do with that, but um, she didn't particularly care. Um, she, she gave Moses a prescription, and uh, so we went home to see if the prescription would work, to see if that would make his cough go away. But after a month, it wasn't getting any better. And so um, last week, I actually um, went back for a checkup. And so uh, she listened to his heartbeat, and and she said, um, his heart's too big. And uh, said that he was having congestive heart failure. And so she said, you know, we'll um, do some consultation, and then I'll call you with a prognosis. And so this last week there was um, two days specifically that I, I came home kind of preparing myself that Moses wasn't going to be there, but his, his he wasn't going to be there, right? Um, but he was. And um, she called and said, well, we have some heart medication that you can put him on. And so he's on heart medication right now. And it's odd to give your dog heart medication, but... What's probably as odd for me is, um, for most of Moses' life, I was really concerned with Moses' performance. I'm um, specifically when I took him on walks. I was really ashamed because, like, he sucked at walking. Like, um, like really tried, you know, I tried the, like, gentle thing, the rod and the staff thing, and, like, none of them comforted <laughs> Moses. And, like, he just wouldn't walk well. And he was always trying to say hi to people on walks. And I was like, just, you know, perform. And, um, And what's fascinating is, like, I just don't give a flip about how well Moses does on walks anymore. I'm not overly concerned with his obedience. Uh, I just enjoy being with him. I enjoy that he enjoys still being with people when they come over to the house. The thing that used to bother me most, right, his snoring, uh, now I find incredibly comforting uh, because I can tell at that point he's at rest after having three days of of not being able to get comfortable because of his heart and his breathing and not sleeping for three nights, which I kind of stayed up with him. And after you've had kids, that's kind of a perfectly normal thing to do is just stay all, all night with small creatures. Um, and so, so I just stayed up for three nights with Moses, and I was just like, buddy, just sleep. Just rest. It's kind of the same thing you say to a baby. <laughs> just sleep. Right? Um, and so now the moments that he, like, curls up in my lap or somebody else's lap and snores. Like, I I recognize, like, there's something beautiful about rest. There's something beautiful about just caring for him. Uh, However many days there are left of his little life, I've recognized, like, there's a big part of me that just wants him to recognize that he has cared for, that he has shepherded. And so God's been teaching me a lot, even um, with my little dog. It's a pathetic excuse of a dog about what does it look like for God to be my shepherd that i don't really think that god's overly concerned with how well i do the walking thing sometimes and like that i like to say hi to people and that i don't always you know do it correctly and, and that i think he really appreciates the moments that i'm fully at rest with him and he loves caring for me and he loves caring in such a way that i feel complete contentment and joy and confidence being with him. So, my thought on Psalm 23 is that the soul needs a shepherd. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. And so, for wherever you are tonight, somebody who comes to Scum every Sunday night, or somebody who's just here at Scum tonight, I think that there's an invitation. Uh, to ask first and foremost, does your soul have a shepherd? Uh, what is it that your life orients itself around? Um, are you willing to be cared for by the good shepherd? So let me pray, say a prayer for us. God, my prayer uh, for those of us in this room, for our families and our friends, our children and our spouses, those who are near from us, and those who are far from us. That we would not be so preoccupied with living lives of incredible improvement. That we do not come to understand what does it look like to have a deep surrender of our soul. That we would be known as people of rest, that have been rescued, that continually are willing to be repenting and believe in your renewal of all things. Would we be known as people whose souls long for eternity and whose souls find their deep contentment and joy, satisfaction, and confidence in you? pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.